Welcome to the Legendary Upside Podcast. My name is Pat Corain. You can find all of my content at legendaryupside.com. This episode of the podcast is going to be a free preview of the narration of the Week 10 walkthrough. Uh, This is my game-by-game preview column that I get out uh, late on Thursday nights, early Friday morning. Um, Let's go ahead and get to a free preview of that narration of the article. The title is Geno Smith Takes Command. Welcome to the Week 10 Walkthrough. In this article, I'll outline critical fantasy football context for this 10th glorious week of football. The stats below are from PFF, NFL FastStar, RBSDM.com, Rotoviz, Fantasy Labs, Fantasy Points, ESPN, NFL Next Gen, and Fantasy Life. The first game is the Colts at Patriots. This is at 9.30 a.m. in Frankfurt, Germany. Colts implied team total 22.25. Since losing Anthony Richardson, the Colts passing game has been unimpressive but functional. Gardner Minshew is profiling a bit like Sam Howell from an EPA perspective. Then I've got a chart here showing EPA per game and success rate. And you can see that Gardner Minshew is, yeah, he's kind of, he's actually a little worse than Sam Howell in both metrics, um, but kind of offering a similar, you know, boom bust. Uh, You're going to get your mistakes. You're going to get some big plays. You're overall going to get an offense that you can do some stuff with. Unlike Howell, Minshew isn't being asked to carry his offense. The Colts are generally a run-first team and have been known to run the ball even in pass-first game environments. Then I've got an expected pass rate chart here. This is the chart with four quadrants in the bottom right hand are teams that are dictating the pass as your Chiefs, Bengals, Bills types. Then you've got uh, in the top right hand, you've got Teams like the Jets and the Patriots, they're passing the ball, but they're kind of been forced to pass the ball. They'd really prefer not to, most likely. Uh, you have teams that really run the ball, but they're doing in game scripts that where it makes sense. The, the Ravens, the Eagles, the 49ers are dictating the run this season. And then finally, in the upper right hand, you've got teams that are refusing to pass. This is your, your Falcons types. And this is where the Colts are. They are not quite as stubborn as the Falcons when it comes to running the ball, but they're kind of like the Titans or the Cardinals. They're not necessarily in game scripts where running the ball you know, makes a ton of sense if you're just trying to optimize for winning, but they have a game plan they're trying to execute, and they're sticking with it even if game script goes against them a little bit. However, the Colts aren't truly hiding Minshew. They went pass-heavy against the Jaguars in Week 6 and were more balanced than expected against the Panthers' brutally bad run defense. Then I've got the pass rate over expected by week, you can see that the Colts were extremely run heavy against the Rams, which is probably skewing their overall numbers a bit. Uh, minus 20% pass rate over expected against the Rams, minus 40% on first down. They haven't been nearly that run heavy in most of their games. Last week, just minus 2% pass rate over expected, minus 9% on first down. This week, the Colts get a Patriots defense that has been very impressive against the run, but vulnerable to the pass. And I've got the matchup chart here. The Colts look pretty average across the board. They have good run blocking, kind of pops out as a strength. Um, But the Patriots are pretty damn strong against the run. Third in rushing success rate, second in PFF's run grades, ninth in run uh, run stop win rate, sixth in EPA allowed per rush. They are not very good against the pass. Mediocre would be kind. They're, They're definitely weak against the pass. We're unlikely to see the Colts attack aggressively through the air, but there should be decent passing volume on the Colts' side. 
Unfortunately, the Colts will likely be without Josh Downs, who is arguably their best wide receiver. Downs leads the Colts in open score and yards per route run, showing an ability to get open and produce efficiently. If he can't go, the Colts will be looking for Alec Pierce to step up, but that's unlikely to go well. And I've got a comparison between Michael Pittman, Josh Downs, and Alec Pierce. Pierce really jumps out here as being very poor in basically every metric. Yards per route run of only 0.76 is terrible. 10% targets per route run is terrible. That's 8th percentile for a wide receiver. But he has a 7th percentile open score, so it makes sense why they're not targeting. He is not getting open. Instead, Michael Pittman will likely see additional target volume, solidifying his position as the passing game's number one option. Downs was forced from last week's game early in the second quarter, and Isaiah McKenzie helped soak up underneath target volume thereafter, producing an 18% targets per outrun, which closely trails Downs' 20% season-long rate. But, finally, this offense revolves around Jonathan Taylor once again. Against the Panthers, Taylor handled 75% of snaps and 62% of carries. Zach Moss continues to have a role in the offense, but Taylor is operating like a clear lead back. If not for two pick sixes by the Colts' defense, Taylor could have had a huge game. Then I've got Jonathan Taylor's game log here. You can see uh, until week eight, he was like a part-time guy, took a jump in week eight to 61% snaps. But then last week, 75% snaps, 62% of carries, 75% of routes. Um, He's not like a workhorse workhorse, but has moved ahead of Zach Moss, I would say. This matchup is far less enticing than last week's. But the Colts are unlikely to abandon the run even with a difficult matchup on tap. And Taylor has seen an encouraging role in the passing game. He had a 23% target share last week and ranks running back 15 with a 12% target share this season, despite only playing 50% plus snaps in two of five games. He has a solid floor here regardless of the game script. Then I've got Taylor's stats from this season, his efficiency and usage, and you can see that actually what jumps out is the receiving efficiency. 1.49 yards per route run isn't off the charts, but it's pretty good for a running back. He has been very inconsistent as a rusher this season with a 28% success rate. So maybe still getting his feet under him a little bit as a rusher, but the Colts are looking to get him involved as a receiver with a 20% targets per route run, and he's performing efficiently there. Zach Moss is less involved in the passing game, so this difficult matchup is more of a concern for him. He's also coming off a highly concerning 19% snap share. Moss has been extremely impressive this season, but the Colts made other plans at running back, and it was only a matter of time before he fell behind Taylor. He'll have some running back two appeal in better matchups, but he's best left on benches here. Then I've got Zach Moss's stats. He's been awesome as a rusher. You know, it's, it's kind of unfortunate that things played out the way they did for him because he could be like a true breakout running back this season, but I think he's behind Taylor here, and this is not a great matchup. Moving to the Patriots, who have an implied team total of 21. Last week, New England faced off against a commander's defense that is extremely weak against the pass, and the Patriots played the matchup, posting a 6% pass rate of expected, their highest of the season. The next chart shows the Patriots' expected pass rate and actual pass rate by week. You can see last week against the commanders, they had a 68% expected pass rate, which is fairly high, but they leaned into it with a 75% actual pass rate that is only 6% uh, above expected. There's some rounding here, uh, which is why it looks like it's 7%. 6.2% exactly over expected. But um, yeah, they were pass heavy last week. They did lean into a matchup that called for a lot of passing. The Patriots' pass heavy game plan was a bit unconventional, however. Without Kendrick Bourne, ACL, and Devontae Parker, concussion, 
they shifted to an extreme rate of 12 personnel, rolling out two tight ends on an absurd 82% of snaps. And I've got a chart from Fantasy Life that shows the rate of 12 personnel and 11 personnel by week. And the Patriots have not really been a 12 personnel team this season outside of a couple instances, but they went to 84%, just three, three wide receiver sets on just 14% of their snaps. So this is a team that very much knew it had uh, wide receiver deficiencies to make up for and uh, leaned on their tight ends. This created elite route participation for both Hunter Henry, 85%, and Mike Gesicki, 87%. Given that neither player can get open, this looks like a desperation move. Then I have a chart comparing Hunter Henry and Mike Gesicki, and yeah, neither player is getting open. Hunter Henry has a fourth percentile open score. Mike Gesicki is better in the seventh percentile. So yeah, they, they, they shouldn't probably be playing both of these guys. Uh, neither one is adding a ton as a receiver. With Parker likely to return this week after logging limited practices, we should see a shift back to more normal personnel deployment. Mac Jones didn't seem to benefit from the new look offense. Then I've got Mac Jones percentiles by week. He was very bad last week. 29th percentile EPA per play, 19th percentile success rate. His CPOE was down in the 9th percentile. Now, this is kind of back to that week 4 and 5 stretch where Mac Jones was terrible. He was also pretty bad in week eight as well. So this is uh, kind of back to being highly concerning here for Mac Jones, especially given the matchup he had last week. Jones now gets a Colts defense that isn't great, but it's a few steps up from the commanders. The Colts pass rush in particular looks like a problem. Indianapolis ranks 12th in pass rush win rate and should create problems for a Patriots offensive line that ranks dead last in pass block win rate. The next chart is the matchup chart here. You can see Patriots really stick out like a sore thumb here as a poor passing team. The Colts are pretty solid against the pass. Uh, both teams kind of middling on the ground. Jones should be looking to get the ball out quickly, which should create opportunities for Demario Douglas. Douglas, 83%, had a big lead in route participation over Jalen Rager at 67% and Juju Smith-Schuster at 41%. And his profile continues to look moderately interesting. Then I've got Demario Douglas's profile. Not very good in open score, fifth percentile there, um, but solid yards per route run of 1.81, getting targeted at a good rate of 23%. It's kind of one of these things where maybe he's just the best they've got right now. As I noted last week, Douglas has faced very little double coverage this season. In the chart above, you can see he's in the 34th percentile. That changed last week with Douglas being double teamed on 29% of his routes. He may struggle again to be a true focal point of the passing game, but he has a solid floor here. Provided the Colts aren't overly aggressive, the Patriots would likely prefer to attack the Colts' middling run defense. Ramondre Stevenson will lead that attack, but not by a big margin. He's had between 41% and 53% of carries for five straight games. Then I've got Ramondre Stevenson's game log, uh, 62% of snaps last week, and that's been very steady. He's been at 64%, 64%, 61%, and 62% over the last four games but um, has peaked at 53%. Going back to week four is, is the only time, uh, most recent time we've seen him above that mark. He was at 67% of carries back in week four. Stevenson hasn't been a good rusher this season. Even after breaking off a 64-yard touchdown against Washington, he ranks just running back 38 in rush yards over expected per game and running back 29 in breakaway yards per game. Then I've got Ramondre Stevenson's profile here. He doesn't look terrible, 
but he isn't flashing as a as a, an efficient player. Um, so the workload concerns are very real given mediocre to poor efficiency. Stevenson's re- receiving efficiency hasn't been very impressive, but his consistent involvement in the passing game makes him a better bet in a pass-heavy game environment. He shapes up as a touchdown-dependent running back two this week. The next game is the Titans at Buccaneers. Titans implied team total, 18.5. In his second NFL game, Will Levis was less efficient and less accurate than in his exciting debut against the Falcons. But Levis was more consistent, improving from a 7th percentile success rate to a 32nd percentile showing. And I've got Will Levis's percentiles by week, just two weeks to go here, and you can see kind of everything condensed towards the middle here. We had some positive regression in success rate. We had some negative regression in EPA per play and CPOE. Uh, he was like bad in week nine, but not horrendous. Levis ranks dead last in success rate, though, which is a major concern. Zach Wilson is composing a thank you note. And I've got Will Levis's chart here on EPA per game. And yeah, for the season, he is dead last in success rate. Zach Wilson uh, is just above him than P.J. Walker. But Levis is much higher on this chart than Zach Wilson, who's at the very bottom, because he's been efficient. He's delivering pretty solid expected points uh, per game. Not that solid, like slightly positive. But for a quarterback with this uh, level of inconsistency, he's been quite efficient. Success rate is more stable than EPA efficiency, making his solid efficiency unlikely to continue unless he can genuinely improve his underlying play. But as CJ Stroud just showed us, the Buccaneers aren't opposed to facilitating a rookie breakout. Tampa Bay ranks 26th in EPA allowed per dropback, dead last in preventing explosive plays, and isn't generating a pass rush. Levis may ultimately prove overly dependent on hunting for big plays, but that style is actually an amazing fit for this matchup. Then I've got the passing matchup here. Yeah, you can see the Buccaneers, they're not getting to the passer and they're allowing big plays. And the Titans, they're, they're not consistent, but they are protecting the passer decently well and they have an okay explosive play rate. Levis, though, that's kind of been his thing. So, you know, these are the season-long numbers for the Titans. We know that Levis specifically is probably going to juice that part of the game. When Levis took over for Ryan Tannehill, I was nervous we'd see the Titans become an extremely run-heavy team, treating their rookie quarterback like they treated Malik Willis last year. But that's not how Mike Vrabel has played it. The Titans aren't a pass-first team by any means, but the Will Levis Titans look like the Titans. They could easily roll out a balanced or slightly pass-first attack against a pass-funnel Buccaneers defense. Then I've got the pass rate over-expected by week uh, for the Titans. And yeah, I mean, they weren't pass-first. They they were run-heavy against the Steelers, minus 5% pass rate of expected, minus 10% on first down. But, you know, the Titans usually do stuff like that. They've done that for years, so they haven't kind of shifted to that ultra-ultra run-heavy style you know, that we're seeing from the Giants under Tommy DeVito type of thing, or like we saw last year when they had Malik Willis, they're kind of operating pretty normally for them. And even if Levis's dropbacks are limited, we should see targets heavily concentrated to DeAndre Hopkins. Hopkins went nuts for 35 points in Levis's debut. His target share then dramatically increased in his second game with Levis under center to an elite 30% mark. 
Hopkins has been the focal point of the Titans' passing attack all season, but it's still been nice to see him establish such a strong connection with his new quarterback. Then I've got Hopkins' game log. You can see that the targets per route run jumped from 20% in Week 8 to 30% last week. Target share also jumped from 20% to 30%. So while his PPR points dropped from 35 to 11, Week 9 was actually a very encouraging sign, uh, just like Week 8 was. Hopkins' very deep 15.2 ADOT and 87th percentile open score, paired with Levis's cannon of an arm, create upside for another explosive performance this week. He's a locked-in wide receiver one. Then I've got DeAndre Hopkins' profile. Yards per route run of 2.44 is elite. Open score of 75 is very strong. ADOT of 15.2 is about as deep as you're going to see for a wide receiver who's drawing a ton of targets. So, you know, it's a very high upside profile and kind of high floor in a sense, too. Fortunately, we got some good news on Traylon Burke's scary injury situation. Then I've got a tweet here from Ian Rappaport, and I had missed this. And actually talking to some people, I feel like this isn't all that commonly known. He didn't end up having to go to the hospital after the scary um, situation on Thursday night football. Uh, so, you know, some some good news that he returned to the locker room. Local reporters saw him in the locker room and got on the team bus with the team. Uh, so just kind of following up on that for anyone who saw Burks being carted off on Thursday night. However, Burks looks unlikely to play this week, which should further condense targets to Hopkins and potentially open up opportunities for Chigakonkwo. Akonkwo posted a season-high 82% route participation against the Steelers. He saw just an 11% target share, but it's been encouraging to see his playing time trend up in recent weeks. And I've got Akonkwo's game log. And yeah, you can see he was down at 65% route participation in Week 5, then up to 73%, 77%, and 82% in Week 9. So he's starting to see you know, borderline elite usage for a tight end when we're talking about how many routes he's running. Okonkwo hasn't really delivered on the target earning promise that he flashed in his rookie season, but his 18% targets per outrun isn't bad either. He's in play as a bet on passing volume. Then I've got Okonkwo's stats here. 18% targets per outrun is fine. Definitely not like what you were hoping for if you drafted him as a breakout candidate, but it's not terrible. 50% open score is also kind of whatever. I would say that's worse than the 18% targets per hour number, but also not anything to be like overly concerned about. Derrick Henry's outlook mainly depends on whether the Titans are able to keep things competitive. Henry's snap share has dipped below 50% in three games this season, but he's never seen less than 62% of carries. The rushing role remains his. But if the Titans aren't able to run much, he's at risk of being phased out. He's played on just 4% of long down and distance snaps this season, and just 10% of two-minute snaps. And I've got his game log, just so that you can see kind of a somewhat weird dynamic. You know, oh, they're tipping their plays, you know, when Derrick Henry's out there. <laughs> I think that's probably over overdoing it to say that, but he is out there primarily to run the ball. 49% snap share last week, 74% of the team's carries, uh, and then he, he gets phased out in those long down distance and two-minute kind of obvious passing situations. Despite being a pass funnel, the Buccaneers aren't especially imposing against the run. Sure, they rank second in EPA allowed per rush, but only 17th in rushing success rate and dead last in run-stop win rate. Then I've got the rushing matchup. And yeah, Buccaneers have been successful, but maybe a bit of a paper tiger against the run. Titans are a pretty good running team. Henry looks 
plenty capable of getting going against Tampa Bay. He just needs the game script to go his way. Then I've got Derrick Henry's stats. Henry has fallen off in the past few seasons in rushing efficiency, but he's kind of having a resurgence this year. Uh, running back 12 in rush yards are expected per attempt, running back 10 in rush yards are expected per game, running back 12 in success rate, running back 7 in breakaway yards per game, running back 15 in elusive rating. He's also running back 4 in yards per outrun, so he's been pretty efficient, really just weirdly. Uh, now we need to, to make sure the volume is in place for Henry when, you know, that used to be something we never worried about. Moving to the Buccaneers, who have an implied team total of 20. Titans and pass funnel have been heavily associated for over a year now. But ironically, we have that association this week because the Titans are playing a pass funnel rather than operating as one themselves. The Titans aren't bad against the run, but there's no reason to avoid running against them this year. Then I've got the matchup here, and you can see Titans are, are like mediocre against the run, and they're kind of mediocre against the pass too. You can kind of pick your your uh, style of attack against them. As opposed to last year, they were like a super big pass funnel, and they started the season as a pass funnel as well. The Titans aren't formidable against the pass either. How the Buccaneers attack here is really up to them and or will come down to game script. Given they're coming off a shootout against the Texans, you might assume that the Buccaneers called plays aggressively last week. But the Buccaneers actually posted a minus 8% pass rate of expected, their lowest rate of the season. Then I've got their expected pass rate and pass rate by week. And you can see like that pass rate, uh, minus 8% pass rate of expected, kept them at a pretty low overall pass rate of just 57%. So they kind of fought the shootout script a little bit last week. The Buccaneers' run-heavy approach ran counter to game script against the Texans. They were not dictating the run. They were fighting the game script. Then I've got a chart here just kind of underlining this point. Um, they weren't like full-blown Falcons last week, but uh, they, they operated very similarly to the Bears did last week. Um, they had a, a much lower pass rate than expected pass rate, and their expected pass rate was decently high. So... Yeah, they were, not, they were not in a position of strength, and then the Texans came storming back. Yes, the Texans won, won the final drive, but overall, we would have expected the Buccaneers to be passing more. Overall, the Buccaneers have been a balanced team, but their minus 4% pass rate of expected on first down is a signal that they prefer to play conservatively whenever possible. Given their pass funnel defense, they may have no choice but to pass frequently here, but they are unlikely to build a game plan designed to emphasize Baker Mayfield. And I've got their pass rate over expected overall and on first and 10. And they're kind of like a version of the Saints, who's maybe a little bit more conservative on first down. Mayfield is coming off an impressive outing against Houston, his third great game of the season. Then I've got Baker Mayfield's percentiles by week. Uh, those great games were in week two and week four. And then last week, he hit 83rd percentile, 82nd percentile, and 82nd percentile marks in EPA per play in those three games. However, Mayfield has been consistently inconsistent. While he's hit a 48th percentile mark in EPA per play in six of eight games, he's hit that mark in success rate just twice this season. Mayfield's low success rate sets him up as a negative regression candidate. And unlike Will Levis, who also looks like a negative regression candidate, Mayfield is playing a defense that has effectively limited big plays. Tennessee ranks just 27th in EPA allowed per play and 29th in dropback success rate, but they have a solid pass rush and rarely blitz, and rank 10th in preventing 15-plus yard pass plays. 
To beat this defense, Mayfield will need to consistently work the ball downfield, which doesn't always go great. The next chart is Baker Mayfield uh, EPA per game. And he's kind of like a more efficient version of Jordan Love or Matthew Stafford when you look at his success rate. Or Sam Howell. He actually compares very similarly to Sam Howell's success rate. He's been better in EPA per play. So, you know, uh, not taking as many sacks as Howell. But, you know, in terms of actually the consistency that he's bringing to the table, very similar. The Buccaneers passing game tends to flow through Mike Evans, who is a big play downfield threat. Evans has an elite 23% first read target rate, and in combination with a deep 14.2 ADOT, Evans' 23% targets per outrun is setting him up for elite efficiency. He's delivering on that with an elite 2.43 yards per route run. And per ESPN, Evans is bringing high-end route running to the table. This matchup isn't a perfect fit for his skill set, but Evans still profiles as a low-end wide receiver one. Then I've got a comparison between Mike Evans and Chris Godwin. Mike Evans' role is quite a bit more juicy than Chris Godwin's, but it's largely because he's getting targeted further downfield in terms of target rate. They're very similar, 23% targets per outrun for Mike Evans, 22% for Chris Godwin. Mike Evans has a slightly bigger lead in first read target rate, uh, 23% to 20%, but they're both getting open at a good rate. It's just that Evans has a 14.2 ADOT to Chris Godwin's 9.8. Chris Godwin's 9.8 ADOT makes him more likely to be featured on quick throws, which could be a point of emphasis this week. And despite seeing less valuable target volume than Evans, Godwin has an important role in the offense. He looks like a strong flex option. Kate Otten had a nice game last week, but he's almost entirely a bet on route volume. His 14% targets per run isn't terrible, but he's not flashing much beyond being on the field a lot. Then I've got a chart showing Kate Otten's stats, and yeah, he pops with 86% route participation, but everything else is very mediocre to poor. 14% targets per route run is 39th percentile for the tight end position. Given how unexplosive Rashad White has been, it feels like the Buccaneers should be more open to a pass-heavy offensive approach, but that's not how they're playing it. And in fairness to White, his rushing profile no longer looks abysmal. White's explosiveness is a major issue, but he's been solidly consistent, ranking running back 23 in success rate. And against the Texans, White posted an elite 55% success rate, the third highest of the week. He's at least giving the Buccaneers a reliable rushing element, even if he's coming up painfully short as a big play threat. The next chart is Rashad White's stats. And yeah, success rate of 39% is below where we would like to see. 40% is kind of like the the line that you like to see players get to. Um, but 39% is just, you know, it's just below that. So it's not it's not like terrible. That's running back 23. Um, but minus 10 rush yards over expected per game is very poor. That's running back 52 running back 50, and rush yards over expected per attempt. So no explosiveness here, um, but pretty good as a receiver. White's receiving profile is also very strong. He has a very respectable 1.26 yards per route run and ranks running back one in ESPN's receiver ratings ahead of Christian McCaffrey, who's running back two, and Austin Eckler, who's running back three. White still has total control of the Buccaneers' backfield as well. If anything, his control is increasing. White has posted 64% plus carry shares in each of the last three weeks. The next chart is White's game log and just highlighting that he's had uh, carry shares of 68%, 64%, and 69% over the last three weeks. All right, that'll do it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. If you are interested 
in checking out the rest of this article in written form or narrated form, head over to legendaryupside.com. You can sign up there, $10 a month, uh, $99 for the year. Obviously, you're going to have best ball content, rookie-based content uh, going on in addition to the in-season content again next year. But if you want to head over there, you can get a premium podcast feed um, as part of that subscription. Uh, very easy to set up uh, in you know Apple Podcast app or any number of other apps as well. And you can listen each week to the entire narrated article or check it out on the site. Hope to see you over there and have a great week 10.